You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. Brad Jerzak is the Dean of Theology and Culture, a graduate studies program at St. Stephen's University in New Brunswick, Canada. We welcome him again to the podcast to discuss his latest book, Out of the Embers, Faith After the Great Deconstruction. Brad is also editor for the ClarionJournal.com and CWR, Christianity Without Religion magazine, available at ptm.org. He and his wife, Eden, have lived in the Abbotsford area of British Columbia since 1988, where they served as pastors and church planners for 20 years. Brad is the author of the trilogy, A More Christlike Word, A More Christlike God, and A More Christlike Way. Many of us first encountered Brad through his breakout book, Her Gates Will Never Be Shut, which investigates a profoundly hopeful eschatology which takes seriously the final vision of the book of Revelation in which the Spirit and the Bride ever issue the invitation to come inside and the gates are ever open. Welcome back, Brad Jerzak, to the Grace Saves All podcast. Thank you, David. It's a pleasure to be with you again. Well, Brad, the cover of your latest book, Out of the Embers, features a couple of fire-resistant, gleaming red roses peeking up dramatically through dark ashes. It looks like something has burned down around these roses, but the fire hasn't burned the roses. Rather, the fire has actually revealed the resilience and beauty of the roses in an even more striking way. So something has burned down, and something has been made even more beautiful and meaningful in contrast. So could you get us started by outlining this for us? Yeah, that's a that's a really beautiful explanation of the cover. Thank you, David. And it it does say something about the book. So the question we're asking is what's burned down? And I think for many of us, uh, both in terms of individuals and on a social level, we've, we've been watching a great fire happen. And in some ways, that's very positive. For example, um, theologically, for me, some of the things that burnt down were, were bad images of God, constructs mm-hmm. of God, that were retributive, violent, punitive. Uh, I know you and I are on the same page about the the ways in which uh, the the doctrine of an eternal conscious torment was was really uh, a huge problem in terms of creating uh, religious PTSD. And so, when those kind of constructs burn down, then those fiery roses are the beautiful gospel, really. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, there's others who've experienced what we call deconstruction sometimes also as a fire, but what's been burnt down is their own sense of meaning, uh, personhood. They didn't just lose their faith. They lost Jesus. They lost uh, a reason for living. And so what I'm exploring on the on the trauma side of deconstruction is this inexplicable faith that survives. It's a uh, it's remarkable that hope is fragile, but it's hard to kill. And so, so you're going to get the range of this in my, my own experience is I've both had that liberating deconstruction where I came out from the ugly God, the monster God, but mm-hmm. I had the traumatic deconstruction where um, the problem of pain and, and, 
the problem of of non-redemptive suffering just really threw me for a loop. And I had to look at my constructs of God all over again. And that's what the book explores. It's how how uh, we can find faith after the great deconstruction. If Jesus' question was, uh, when I when I return, will I find faith in the earth? And he leaves that open for us to respond, and I'm trying to do that. Well, in the book, you write this from your personal perspective. In my case, my doubts about divine retribution and eternal conscious torment drew me to Christ rather than away from him. Doubts can be bulldozers rather than boulders, the via negativa that removes obstacles to lead us home. Could you unpack that a little bit for us? Yeah, so there are many people who seem to think deconstruction is about losing their faith, right? But really, the great history of the church, the the tradition itself, includes this element that deconstruction or the via negativa is about removing what hinders us in drawing near. So, for example, if someone has an idea of God that is scary, they're going to run from him, not to him. And if those ideas of God that that block the way or hinder our intimacy with God, um, if they can be removed, that's the that's a, a really beautiful kind of deconstruction. And I what I see in this is um, often uh, religion has in, in our quest to know God, we've actually erected false gods. And so the original deconstructionist was was Moses, I think. You know, mm-hmm. when he has to remove the golden calf that they were told delivered them from Egypt. And I think I think uh, religion and Christianity itself has a lot of these golden calves. But uh, so when I hear about deconstruction, I don't immediately panic and say, oh no, someone's backsliding again. Mm-hmm. Uh, rather, it's like, here's a possibility uh, that someone is actually coming closer to God, but we've got to remove those, those golden calves to get there. Now, in my case, it wasn't just eternal conscious torment that I couldn't abide, it also became clear to me that I couldn't abide even anyone's final annihilation or permanent loss. But those of us who deconstruct into the land of ultimate redemption, where all are finally saved, face being called heretics or labeled as promoting a dangerous, aberrant, heterodox form of Christianity, what do you have to say to those of us whose spiritual home lay in the confidence that God really will be all in all? Yeah, that's a marvelous question. I I think there's a way of testing this. <laughs> One is uh, Jesus didn't say measure measure who wins the argument about universal hope by who has the best theology theological points or even the most Bible verses. What Jesus says to do is test the fruit. And if the fruit of of the preaching of, of whether it's um, eternal torment or a final destruction, if the fruit of that is some kind of uh, fear, if it's debilitating, if it creates if it creates trauma, uh, mm-hmm. as it has for so many people, then right out of the gate, testing by the fruit tells us something is off in this. And I might say too, it's in the way that I teach ultimate redemption. I'm watching for the fruit of that too. And, and for those, uh, for, for some, for some, that's just license to run away and do their own thing. But that's because their hearts haven't been won yet. 
but I'm certainly not going to win those hearts with a threat or a smoking gun, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the first layer. Jesus says, test by the fruit. And I just think it's very clear now that the fruit of, of teaching a punitive God who, um, who is going to send most people into the fire of destruction, a destructive fire, that that's a, the, the fruit is bad. Second, I would say that some of us don't care about the tradition and some of us do. Some of us think, well, I, you know, I'm more, I have conservative impulses. I, and that would be me. So mm -hmm. in me, instead of going off the end of a limb, I went down the trunk of the tree to the very roots of our faith. And what I discovered there was um, that the, that in, in some ways we might call ultimate redemption the most conservative reading of scripture because we take very seriously Jesus' promise that he will draw all people to himself, Paul's prophecy that every knee will bow and tongue will confess, um, Jesus' invitation that every eye would see him, you know. And, and so as I'm going through the scriptures again without my old fear-based fear lenses, I'm like, you know, I want to conserve, I want to be conservative. I want to conserve the teachings of Paul and Jesus and uh, Origen and Gregory. And then I, what you're hearing me doing right now is I, I start streaming through the first Christians and I say, okay, there are multiple streams going on here. I'm going to pick um, I'm going to conserve the most beautiful stream. And then maybe that would be the third layer I, I would bring to it. So number one is what's the fruit? Number two, can we conserve the uh, an ancient teaching on, on this? And number three, what's more beautiful? Because that is a criteria for the truth in the ancient world. Well, I think one of the fears that people have is that deconstructing will lead them out of the faith and therefore out of the community. But your process did not lead you out of the faith, and it did not lead you out of community. And I wonder if you could talk about that. Yeah, I'm, I'm grateful to say that that was my experience, but it's not been the experience of others. So, for example, um, I got a message from someone who was going through the very same thought processes as, as me, right? So in my community, um, I was able to walk through my questions around penal substitutionary atonement, eternal conscious torment, and Old Testament genocide. I was able to, to work through that with supportive mentors who were very wise. I was able to work through my own doubts with sponsors and, and healers. Um, I was able to be inside of a community that actually welcomed this as good news. Now this, uh, I'm just using one of probably hundreds of examples of those who contact me. This guy contacts me and he's like, I've come to the same conclusions as you, but if I say them out loud, I will be excluded from my community. And in fact, my wife said she would leave me. I'm like, what? So, <laughs> so his, his, in his own family, um, the deconstruction of that golden calf actually became a deal killer in his marriage. I'm like, something is really strange about this, but I'll even go further. Um, at least he, you know, he was kind of pursuing a truth. Others have said, you know, when I left, I, I was considered a heretic. Um, and then actually I became a heretic and now I don't believe in Jesus anymore, but I'm and in fact, I'm a nihilist now. <laughs> I'm like, 
what? So it seems to me that people's responses and experiences around this can range from really uh, a move towards uh, a, a, a deeper conviction about the goodness of God inside of a, a, of a community that welcomes it. Others really have been outcast. And, and my heart for them is that they would find that they would find communion again, that they would find connection again, that they would find a community that welcomes the good news. Because I even call some of those believers, B-E-L-E-A-V-E-R-S, that perhaps even Christ led them out of those communities, but we don't want to leave them hanging um, on their own, lonely and without connection. The good news is this is quite a big wave. I don't, I, I think it's a matter of finding one another, like you and I found each other. Right. And uh, you found the um, the Orthodox Church, which w- welcomed this conversation with you and was able to mentor you through it. I'm in a um, small denomination called the Christian Church Disciples of Christ, and but we rejected creeds as tests of fellowship. So we encouraged people, even ministers, to continue on that path, you know. So uh, we welcomed people's sort of lifelong journey of growth in that process. So I was able to process that without having to leave my community or leave my church. But that's that's an unusual situation. Tell us just a little bit about how it was that the that you found the Orthodox Church and that that became a home for you, or if you've heard of other homes, church homes that people might find. Sure. Um, and while your, your experience, uh, you've described it as, as unusual, I, w- I am praying for a, a great momentum of the unusual. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, I'll, I'll start, f- first of all, more broadly, then I'll zoom in in the Orthodox. Um, so, you know, the Open Table Conference people, we're, we're really very much on the same page in this. Well, who's part of that? Well, we've got some Episcopalians. Mm-hmm. We've, got, we've got some um, independent uh, I don't know what word of life church is, you know, I'm right. Uh, Ryan's honest church. Yeah. But it's not, it's not like it's independent, but I can't, I can't find a label for it, which I think is a sign of the spirit. <laughs> um, well, he's intentionally positioned it within the, within the, within the sort of the generous stream of orthodoxy. Yeah. That's the ecumenical true. spirit. Yeah. And so he's hesitant to, to use tighter labels, right? That would mm-hmm. would narrow that vision. We've got uh, Father John and I. We're that we're from the Orthodox Church. We've we've got folks who don't attend a church. You know, like um, like Paul Young doesn't it doesn't spe- uh, have a specific community where he's an active member, and yet his community is enormous, and it includes uh, brothers on death row. You know, so we've we what we're seeing is we're we're seeing a kind of like heartedness. Uh, across these streams. Now, I think when within each of these streams, you're you're going to get a range from flaming fundamentalists to flaming progressives, and and um, so, for example, then in the Orthodox Church, my experience was very good because I first encountered the Orthodox Church through Archbishop Lazar Pahalo, who's the abbot of a nearby monastery. When I first started meeting with him, he said. Um, he, he walked me through this idea of the wrathful God. And mm-hmm. 
who demands satisfaction and needs a blood sacrifice in order to get the you know to satisfy justice so so he initially walked me through a deconstruction of penal substitution but as we've gone through the years and now it's almost 20 years of, of conversation with him um, he also made it clear that that the creeds themselves the the specifically the apostles creed and nicene creed don't require um, specific belief in the, in a doctrine of hell. In fact, they sort of prevent you from having one. So it's a little bit similar to your experience in that um, uh, we're not meant to teach a doctrine of hell as dogma in the Orthodox Church because it's not in the creed. And so why would you add something then and so the creeds for me have given me an incredible freedom because all it requires is that I believe he's coming again with glory to judge the living and the dead. Judge can mean restorative. It can be the cleansing fire like George MacDonald talks about. And then we look forward to the resurrection and the life of the age to come, period. Amen, period. So then I, I almost feel like it's a heresy to make somebody sign a statement that says, I believe in hell, you know, that kind of thing. So that's what I was working with with him. And, and, and well, let, let me just interrupt. When you say hell in that sense, to say, to have to, I have to believe in a hell of some type of eternal separation, of either annihilation or eternal torment. But you could think of, well, I think of hell as a certainly a place of a difficult place where we have to face the consequences of our sins and truly repent from those and experience true remorse, uh, you know, that yep. in fact could be a worse hell in the hell of eternal torment. You, you just, you never have to face the pain of truly coming to, to grips with what you've done and make the turnaround. You're spared, yeah. you're spared yeah. that. And th what is, what is harder than like the experience that Paul had to have to be driven to your knees to realize, oh my gosh, what I've done to actually repent from that. Yeah. I, and so, you know, David, I, I think, you know, I, I'm completely with you on that one. So then we're talking about the nature of hell right. and the nature of hell doesn't come up in the creed. That's kind of the point. In other words, you, you, they, it should not be used as a test of fellowship yet we are allowed to have convictions about it. And so in the Orthodox hymnology, every single week is regarded as a celebration of the resurrection. So every single week we proclaim that Christ conquered hell, that he descended into hell, that he found humanity personified in Adam and Eve and raised up all humanity with himself in the resurrection. It's just a overtly universalist hymns, hundreds of them. Now, here's the weird thing. You also have many, many priests in the Orthodox Church who just simply don't believe in that. And so, you know, there's anywhere from 250 to 350 million Orthodox. And, and so you're going to get the, the flaming fundies among them as well. Uh, what I, I just don't understand how they can sing those hymns and believe in eternal conscious torment. It makes no sense. And so I wrote Archbishop Lazar last week, and I just said, you know, when I, when I read this, that he descended into hell and raised up humanity with himself so that all people exit the tomb. I, there's just, 
I, I don't see another way to read that. And he, and he responded in one line, there is no other way to read it. <laughs> so <laughs> it's very interesting then that, that um, within my community, it's just not even a, a controversy, but I mean my local community. But if yeah. I were to have it out with, let, well, I have had it out with the priest down in the next city who just absolutely believes God is retributive. And I'm like, how do, how do you read that? So it's not like you're going to find one place where everybody's on the same page. And maybe that's okay, as long as you don't make it a test of fellowship. Well, in the book, uh, you lead us through some very dark places. And one of the things that can lead to somebody losing their faith is, is not just, you know, theological problems about yeah. hell, but about how can God be all good and all knowing and all powerful and still allow horrors to take place that do that do take place in this world and you don't shy away from pretty brutal descriptions of those yeah. horrors so how how does you know how do we individually deal with that and maybe how does christianity itself deconstruct from the horrible suffering that it has institutionally inflicted i'm thinking of the cross and the lynching tree james cone yeah you know those types of things and and others so talk about that a little bit yeah that's an ancient that's an ancient um logical problem if god is all good or all loving and he's all powerful then um how is it that we see these these horrendous kind of afflictions in the world and so normally, that is, a, that is an argument that it ends up in a couple ditches. <laughs> One ditch is just to say that the argument itself, itself negates the existence of God. There is no such God. The other ditch, which is where the church has often been uh, the agents of, of great harm, is when you try to rationalize your way back. Say, okay, I'm going to come up with a rational explanation and, and that, that brings those three premises together. And Martin Luther noticed this, and then Simone Weil picked up on it in the 20th century, as did a Canadian political philosopher, George Parkin Grant. And wh what Luther said was, when you... When you try to do that, when you try to reason your way out of the problem of evil, you will always, always end up making good evil or evil good. So, for example, to make good evil would be to say, okay, uh, God wills all that this happens and he's in control and it's all, you know, he commands it. In fact, um, it's, it's, um, Kelvin even said, uh, you know, that God governs every evil, nay, he commands it, you know, he, mm -hmm. so now you've made good into evil. Um, that's an evil God by any, any use of the word good and evil. The other is you can make evil good. So it's like, well, God took my son or God gave me cancer or God inflicted this rape, you know, it's like, so what are we saying? Is God a rapist or are we saying rape is good? It's just crazy. So so what um, Luther in his Heidelberg Confessions and then Vey and, and Grant say is uh, God does not reason his way out of these kind of afflictions. He responds and his response is a cross. 
And on the cross, we see something that the distance uh, between the goodness of God and the affliction of humanity is a real contradiction. You don't reason it back together. They are infinitely distant. But then he says, or they especially, says, but God in Christ on the cross spans the distance. In other words, between the two nail holes in his hand that represent his suffering, he suffers with, co-suffers with, uh, all of humanity, the whole timeline of, of human experience. He, he takes that up, the, all of that darkness into himself, and, and it intersects in that person on the cross. So I'm like, how can I put together the goodness of God and the, and the affliction of man? Not with, a, not with logical reasoning. It is an experience of the crucified Christ who is perfect goodness, and who experienced absolute suffering. And so that's why even, um, you know, the, the James Cone would say, where, where is Christ in the, midst, in, in the midst of these horrors around lynching trees? He's like, he's on the lynching tree. He did this with us. But it's not just that he came down and suffered our afflictions with us. It's he unites himself with us in those afflictions and then raises us up together in his resurrection. Well, how does that help in this life? Somehow, here's the miracle. Instead of reasoning our way there and hoping that logic will make me feel better, I I find myself at the foot of the cross and have the existential encounter of his wounds healing my wounds. The blood that poured from him pours over me. And now I'm talking in poetic language, mystical language, but it's an experience. So I've never... I've never seen anyone really get through those kind of horrors without an encounter of the crucified one um, touching them in, in the midst of, of their affliction, but he does. And this is one reason why, why we may call him savior. So I think we can't shy from the problem of evil. We have to admit it is a problem and that, um, that God's only response to it isn't an answer. It's, it's a cross and, uh, Archbishop Lazar calls it, he calls it the co-suffering love of God, which is literally what compassion means, compassion. Well, yeah. well um, you talk about how in the book, this is a quote, God does not coerce obedience. Divine love consents even to our waywardness, however foolish or dangerous. Granted, the scriptures include an abundance of dire warnings about the consequences of wandering away. Again, we have accounts of Jeremiah and Jesus weeping over their prodigal people. They see the collateral damage, but they also let us go, and they pray for our willing return, which is the only faith that counts. In the end, authentic faith, serious faith, requires a free choice, not an ultimatum. No gun-to-the-head threat of eternal torment will suffice. The Father will not abide a hostage video confession. Yeah, amen. <laughs> I... um. I, I really do, you know, there's folks that believe that, that ultimate redemption just means everyone's automatically in, sin doesn't matter, the cross doesn't matter, judgment doesn't exist, repentance isn't a thing, faith in Christ is not required, you know, and, and we just don't believe that. Um, I'm, looking, I'm looking at the, the means of ultimate redemption, the means of universal salvation, are the work of uh, the work of Christ 
and our response to the work of Christ. It's just that death has been destroyed, so it's no longer this um, kind, kind of ticking time bomb that's hanging over our heads. Now, it's obviously better to respond now because when we meet Christ, this life is the only thing we have to offer him in our gratitude. And we don't get to live it again. We don't get to say, wow, I wasted my whole life on myself, self-will, self-centeredness, selfishness. And um, well, now I have not, as I come through the fire of judgment, um, I have nothing, I have nothing to give you. Like, I think that's going to cause weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. I also believe after that, he will wipe every tear from our eyes. But there's a much better path. And that path looks like surrender today to the to the love of God who cares for us and who walks with us and to have a conscious connection with perfect love as the ground of your entire life from this day going forward would is 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 far superior to saying, well, I'll live for myself how I want. And then when I'll meet him, I'll just repent. You know, yes, you will. But wow, that would be that would be a waste of a life. And, and to me, that doesn't take life very seriously. It asks the question, is there life before death? Not, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Now, the idea that God's love is non-coercive in the way that God apparently changes God's mind in relation to human objections, at least in some Bible stories, has led some to embrace a view called open theism, in which God actually can't intervene, and where God actually can't know how many will ultimately be saved. At least that's a summary of open theism from my understanding. Maybe you can sharpen that definition or or respond to the open theism view in some way. Yeah. So I have very good friends that are open theists. Um, We're just not on the same page about this in some ways. In other ways we are. So for example, I I, I find that open theists and I think very, very similarly about God's consent um, to, to our decisions, even our dysfunctional decisions and God, and that God consents to our experience of the consequences of those decisions. So we're very much on the same page in, in the sense that God is not coercive and that, that he does consent and that this is both the love and the wrath of God in a sense, um, where we differ would be, uh, uh, they would resist ideas of God where um, in thinking about like, like God's not coercive or controlling, um, they would also then worry that he's not relational if we believe he's all powerful or he's all knowing or he's all anything. And, and so what they want to do is they go to like um, uh, Clark Pinnock did this first really well. I think he, he went to the Old Testament and he found all the scriptures where it says God repents or God relents or God changes his mind. He would read those literally. And I simply don't. I think that that is these are phenomenological descriptions. So what phenomenological means I take a lot of time just so I can pronounce it. Um, it means how it appears to us. So in Jonah, does God actually repent and relent of punishing Nineveh? Or does he issue um, um, a warning and a call to repentance so that 
when they do repent, it appears that God changes his mind. But what's actually happened is in our turning towards God, the outcome is changed. And this was God's heart all along. Um, the other thing is that, and, and, and so, you know, that's kind of neither here nor there. That could just be theological nitpicking. Where, where it matters to me is some of them go as far as to say, um, for God to be relational, it means he, he must be able to turn away or to withdraw his mercy. And that's where I think this is hugely problematic that, uh, and not all of them believe this, but it would be like when, when you sin, God withdraws his mercy. And so the enemy can, can deliver consequences. And I'm like, no, the Bible says his mercy endures forever. His loving kindness is everlasting. And of course, God knows who's going to turn to him because they all will. (laughs) um, His foreknowledge is not determinism. So in some ways, I think the open theists have, they're addressing either a problem that they made up um, or they're addressing a problem that happens later in the church where God is this unmoved mover. Well, so like, let's say they would reject the idea of immutability that God doesn't change. What I would say is in the early church, ideas like immutability or omnipotence were never divorced from his essence, which is love. So they're only descriptions of his love. All right. So now it's not just that God is this unmoved mover. No, God is love. Of course, he he responds to us, but he never turns from us. It's immutable love. It's omnipotent love. It's a love that never fails. It's a love that never turns. It's a, a love that never staggers. It's, it's another word for faithfulness. Unfailing love is omnipotent and immutable. And to be relational, it does not require him to be able to turn away from us or, or to withdraw from us. For him to be relational means that his love will flow out of his infinite wellspring without fail all the time. And that when we come to him, he does hear us and he does love us and he does respond to our cries and he does come down for us. But he's not jerked around as if he's on some emotional roller coaster that I'm running. It's like, no, he's he's so, and so we would use this ancient Greek word stasis. Well, what they hear is static. (laughs) He's not static. Stasis just means utterly stable in his love for us. It's always, always about that one essence love. So once, and so when I talk to my open theist friends like this, they, they do tend to, to see my point. Um, but they're pretty invested in their model and they do recognize that, that while they may agree with me, there's a lot of others that they need to push back at. So, so the, the debate continues, but it's uh, in my view, a friendly one that also has not caused become a test for fellowship. These are good folks. Now, you are an advocate of salvation by grace. You are not advocating that we earn our salvation, but you also insist that our salvation will not occur without our real participation. About this, you write, what then is a Christian? A Christian is a follower, not a fan. Christ is looking for disciples, not adherents to Jesus' teaching, admirers of his celebrity, or even worshipers of his deity. 
His call was to followers of a life. Jesus came to save the world, not instructed. And that salvation includes following the pattern of his footprints, joining Christ on the Jesus way. Take up your cross and follow me is not a dogmatic belief system. It is the application of Jesus' whole life to the life of the whole church. Simply put, it is to be like Christ from his baptism to his resurrection. And then you reference uh, the writing of Kierkegaard. And you say Kierkegaard was huge on the imitation of Christ, which for him meant following the example, being willing to witness for the truth and against the untruth, and to do so without seeking any support whatsoever from any external power, neither attaching oneself to any power nor forming a party. Yep. <laughs> so, um, um, my, my understanding of salvation has broadened through the years. Uh, when I grew up in the tradition that, uh, of, of my parents, to be saved was this, was that you were given by grace, um, uh, righteousness, imputed righteousness was imputed to you by grace alone, if and when you said the sinner's prayer, which is still kind of a work in my mind, but you know, it is a response to grace. But then we would even then say, when were you saved? Well, I was saved in 1972 when I said the sinner's prayer. Um, that feels now to me, in retrospect, like a much narrower definition. Uh, I honor that landmark in my journey, for sure. It, it was actually truly life-changing. It, it matters that I that I did that. But when I think of salvation now in New Testament terms, I, I think of three things. One is, I think, uh, when were you saved? Well, one way we could say it is from the foundations of the earth. But we'll skip that one. That's more... That, that, that's a rabbit hole, but I believe in that. But certainly, certainly, I there's past, present, and future. So past is I was saved 2,000 years ago at the cross uh, by grace alone when Christ uh, reconciled me to his Father while I was still is not born. But even Romans 5 will say while we were enemies, while we were ignorant, while we were powerless. Elsewhere, he'll even said while we were dead, uh, he raised us up. So there's this element of of uh, the grace of God in Jesus Christ when he says it is finished on the cross. We couldn't do that for ourselves. It's a resurrection, and it's a resurrection in Christ. Um, and this is how the Orthodox would read even the gospel stories of the raising of Jairus' daughter from the dead. This is a story about the gospel and about what Christ did for us. He touches us and he makes us whole. I'll skip the present and go to the future now. There's also a future sense of salvation that we have not arrived at yet, and that would that would include the resurrection of our bodies into immortality. You know, so we will be saved shows up in in Romans five as well. It's like, what do you mean we will be? He's talking to Christians, yeah, but he's talking about the end game when we were are resurrected and glorified and and complete in Christ. In our journey. So that's our telos is a kind of uh, the end game of our salvation. And then we have this present tense. So the present tense of salvation isn't about whether you're going to heaven or hell or not, or whether you're in or not, you're in. But um, I am being saved um, through these, these landmarks where, where um the truth of my being is becoming the way of my being, where 
I'm not just declared righteous, but where my character is being made, is being transformed and transfigured from glory to glory into the image of Jesus Christ. And, and um, I don't generate that either. Uh, that's a grace work in me, but it does, it does ask for my participation. And so I would call it this, I, um, I, I would, I would call that uh, reciprocal salvation in the sense that um, my bride, the bridegroom loves his bride and she reciprocates his love and that, and she participates in the real marriage. Um, and so as we participate in our union that Christ alone established, um, that begins permeating my actual life and how I treat my wife and my children and, and how I do my, go about my neighborhood and relate to the world. That's a, that we in, in in the church I grew up and we would have called that sanctification and Paul's like yes that's part of that's that's part of the uh, under the umbrella of what it means to work out your salvation oh so I have been saved but I'm being saved and I will be saved how by grace so the invitation then is so so come participate in this love relationship it's it's not just a um I, I, I'm not ignoring the one to, with whom I'm married. Well, when I, uh, as I've been going down this road, um, I, I felt it was my responsibility to try to describe to people, what is this way? What is this Jesus way that we, let's say we receive the grace and now we mm. want to grow in it. Thankfully, what is the Jesus way? And so one time I, I spent a year and a half preaching through the Sermon on the Mount verse by verse. Mm. And uh, of course, the person who was changed most of all by that experience was me because I had to preach on the, the, the way of life that Jesus was talking about. Then at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, I noticed that Jesus said that, that the man who builds his house on the rock is the one who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. Yes, yes, yes. Well, yes. these words of Jesus talk about a renouncing of violence uh, towards other people and uh, even loving enemies, loving those who are, who are persecuting. It was an extraordinary kind of love. It was, it was almost a countercultural movement or being a part of this kingdom that was not of this world, but living in this world and living in this kingdom as a, as a, as a way of showing who God really is and that we love to show we love not, just to love our enemies, but because God is an enemy lover. So I just, it just became really clear to me that it seems like that was the community that Jesus was envisioning as a sign of good news to the world. But then as that, um, as the story goes on, especially in Western Christendom, we almost end up with the reverse of that, with a, yeah. with a joining of that to incredible violence and, uh, state church sponsored violence and you talk about a little bit of that in in the book because you just talk about your thoughts some of your thoughts about that yeah it sounds like we've taken a very similar journey um so there's this sense bonhoeffer who was a lutheran his critique of luther um whether it's fair or not i think it is but his critique of luther says Luther taught something like this, that you read the Sermon on the Mount 
and you're meant to despair of obeying it because it's the righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. So in your despair, you throw yourself upon the grace of God. And then he goes further and says, and so you are not able to obey this sermon. You are not able to do what he says. In fact, even if you try to, you are actually renouncing the grace of God. And Bonhoeffer, the Lutheran, says this is ridiculous. Um, the end of the sermon is a clear call to hear these words of mine and do what I say, and that the grace of God empowers that. In fact, the, the Beatitudes themselves that begin the sermon are the fruit of the grace of the Holy Spirit in us, transforming us into the image and character of Christ. So, I, and interestingly, uh, I just stole that from Pope Benedict the Sixteenth. <laughs> this is this is Jesus' version of the fruit of the Spirit. It's the fruit of grace. So, um, um, and then and then, it's interesting that in casting ourselves on the grace of God instead of obeying the the call. Uh, to follow this, the, the way of Jesus, the way of grace in our actual lives. You're exactly right. It, we end up using that as our exit ramp from enemy love so that we can co-opt the gospel as, um, as a way to justify extreme violence and politicizing the gospel and replacing the gospel with some kind of um, imperial religion or state religion with a thin veneer of Jesus talk over it, which is really what it is to take the Lord's name in vain. And so um, I noticed that like, especially, especially in the, in the, it's probably 300 years of this leading up to Tolstoy at the end of the 19th century, where it's hard to find a commentary that calls you to obey the Sermon on the Mount. They are always finding a way to escape Jesus' call to stranger love, enemy love, and and uh, that kind of radical that ra radical vision. Tolstoy picks it up and he says, "Look at we've got a. This is the religion of Jesus. <laughs> He's using religion not in the pejorative, but it's like if you're going to have a religion." He wasn't so sure, and he lived in Russia. He's like, look at the look at the Russian church right now. It's imperial. It's violent. It calls you to take oaths that of of fealty to its agendas, including becoming soldiers who will go to war and all of it. And and, and he says, uh, he he says we need to renounce that and embrace the religion of Jesus, which is the Sermon on the Mount. And then to actually live it in little communities. So I, I loved how you were describing it earlier. These are little signs in this world of the forthcoming kingdom of peace. And so they 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 created what they call Tolstoy farms all over the place. And um, and Gandhi picked up on this and started a Tolstoy farm. And so here's a Hindu who never stopped being a Hindu, who embraced the Sermon on the Mount and read it every day, every day. and worked out how to how to practice it in his life well he ends up having you know these guys meet howard thurman who becomes the 
spiritual father of Martin Luther King Jr. And what's he calling us to do? He's calling us to transcend hatred, not just transfer power from whites to blacks, but to transcend the hatred altogether and, and come together around the table and find out what, what equity would look like. And then, um, um, and then you get Thich Nhat Hanh, who's a, uh, who's a Buddhist, and he gets into these conversations with, with Thomas Merton. And, and, and there, um, through those conversations and their engagement with peacemaking, love of enemy, Sermon on the Mount, here's a, you know, a monk from, 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 from Vietnam right when during that war is, is calling Christians back to the Sermon on the Mount, and in fact, calling Buddhists to what we now call engaged Buddhism, where you don't, you don't just try to escape the world, but you engage the poor. And the, it, so there was this explosion or, or, of a little revival mm-hmm. around the Sermon on the Mount, about 100, and, you know, now we're into maybe 130 years of this, not everyone buys in, but I have, you know, Brian Zahn has, and, and, um, and uh, some of some of the, I I, I think pe- people are so sick of war and so sick of violence and so sick of hatred that we're starting to get it, and um, and maybe maybe we'll bottom out on that and follow Jesus. But um, the way John Baer describes this is like if you think about the end game, the telos of it all, when 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 all of creation is is um, submitted to Christ and there are no more enemies and he hands the kingdom over to his father and God will be all in all. What we're seeing today, what you were describing is like snowdrops and crocuses popping through the snow. Signs of spring, of what's coming, of a blooming that will cover the whole world. And in the meantime, will we be participants in those communities that are those crocuses and snowdrops that that uh, give hope when there's a lot of reason to despair? Well, in the and book, yet they pop up. <laughs> Go ahead. In the book, you lead us to pay attention in this regard to the martyrs, and you yeah. write the martyrs <clears throat> also guide us in terms of our values, ethics, and alliances. With a steady dose of their medicine, we are reminded of what should be obvious commitments that have become slippery in Christian culture. Here are a few. Don't torture and kill people. Reject violence as a means to govern. Don't become insurgents. Reject violence against those who govern. Don't abandon the afflicted ones. Stand, kneel, sit, and be with the oppressed. Don't lash out in retaliation. Reject violence as a means to advocacy and allyship. Be faithful to the Jesus way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so when I talk like that, I actually get messages from Christians telling me <clears throat> that I am dangerously naive. And I'm like, you know what? Um, I believe that the way of violence is not only dangerously naive, we have a track record and a body count to prove it. I can show you the receipts, you know what I mean? And and if we would put the same kind of energy and commitment and money and people into the Jesus way, just as a social project, um, 
uh, a we would we would see that it is a far more effective way of of bringing peace on earth than bigger bigger bombs you know but also b that that actually won't ultimately do the trick we're going to need christ to step in and transfigure and transform the cosmos uh because um so on the one hand, the Jesus way is the way we've been called to, to live and to, to transform culture. Uh, and on the other hand, ultimately, ultimately, Christ himself needs to do something even greater than, than a reformation. Well, when, when it comes to the telos or the ultimate goal or yeah. purpose of fulfillment of creation, at one point in the book you write, at its best deconstruction serves our personal transformation from glory to glory in the image of Jesus Christ, theosis, and leads to the restoration of all things, apocatastasis, prophetically symbolized by Jesus' water-to-wine miracle at Cana. Could you unpack that a little bit? Yeah. Um, so the water-to-wine miracle um, is... Brian Zahn's favorite metaphor for mm-hmm. deconstruction, for trans, I mean, because it is, doesn't even sound like deconstruction, does it? It's, it's a transformation. It's a, it's a miracle. And it's a miracle that happens through individuals um, who are being transformed and transfigured, who are going from water to wine through um, their participation in the new covenant. But the telos or, um, refers to, to how it all not only how it ends, but the goal of all things. And so one, th- one way to think about this is, is that um, Aristotle talks about different kinds of causes. One of those kinds of causes, you've got, you know, a, if you have a chair, um, there's a sense in which the tree is the cause of a wooden chair. There's a sense in which the carpenter is the cause of a wooden chair. There's a sense in which his work in fashioning it is the cause, but there's also a final cause, and that is somebody needed somewhere to sit down. That's the end goal, right? And out of that end goal, you begin a whole process that leads to that goal. And that's how I see that the telos of of humanity and the cosmos is... um, that God would be all in all. If you start from that end goal, then then you can ask, how does God bring us to that end goal? How does he get us to be seated with him in heavenly realms in Christ Jesus? And well, it begins by creating a universe. And then it begins by um, governing and redeeming that universe. It becomes, it, it happens as he enters that universe in space and time in the person of Jesus. It happens as we, and, and, and even the final judgment becomes a means that gets us to that final cause. But the final cause tells you the goal from the beginning. And that, yeah, um, yeah that's kind of how I see that. Yeah, those words, uh, theosis and apocatastasis were not really a part of my theological vocabulary 10 or 15 years ago, but they have become uh, welcome companions as I think about this along the way now. Yeah, I mean, maybe all of your listeners have heard those words, but I'll just give a very quick definition in case this is a first time. So theosis is the is the process whereby we are being transformed into the image of Christ who is divine. We become divine by grace, whereas Jesus Christ is divine by nature, but we're becoming like him in that sense. Theosis is that process. 
Um, everybody in the early church talked about this. Uh, Christ became human so that we could become divine. Not that we would be gods in the sense of I am Yahweh, <laughs> and certainly not I am God on my own, but no, as, as I participate in the divine nature, according to Peter, um, that transforms me into the image of Jesus Christ. And then uh, apocatastasis, how do you say it? Well, I say, I say apocatastasis. I think you're, you're saying it the right way. Um, that's just <laughs> from Acts 3, and it refers to the restoration of all things. That's the telos. That's the end game. That's the goal, <laughs> the restoration of all things in Christ. Um, so, yeah, I thought I should just mention those definitions. Now, one of the themes I appreciate in your book was how you shared your journey in coming to appreciate Jesus' declaration that the kingdom of God is now present among us. You write, Jesus said, the kingdom of God is not elsewhere, it is at hand, it is within you. But the premise of revival meetings seems to be God is not here and we need to get him here. We need to do something to entice him. I knew how to do this. In our preaching, we re-erected a veil of estrangement and then made an industry of rending the veil that Christ has already removed once and for all. It's painful to remember. What can I say? It was the 1970s and then the 1990s. Yeah, so I, I in the 70s, I was a little boy who underwent those traveling revivalists. Um, and by the way, that always was attended by hellfire preaching as well. And so they would start by erecting a theological veil. You are separated from God. There you go. That's already a heresy. Um, separation theology is, is a lie. Um, it is a kind of ugly dualism that imagines that my sin could ever make God turn from me or abandon me. And, and worse, maybe, is that to rectify this, I need to make a decision. I need to come forward at a meeting. I need to produce tears over this. And that that will rend the veil. Then God will come. And in the 90s then, you know, I was one of these guys. Now, I didn't say it like that. But when I heard others say it like that, I, could, I realized I was doing the same thing in a subtle way. But I remember the night when a friend of mine and I went to a revival meeting. And... Um, it was, you know, the whole God chaser movement and and we're going to chase God until we can convince him to come in. And I remember the the, the preacher was, was yelling, uh, and these were teenagers, and he's like, cry out to God, young people, cry out to God. He's just outside the door. And so they start crying out louder and louder. And I'm like, oh my goodness, this is the prophets of Baal. And then he, he literally said this, he can't hear you, louder, louder, come forward, run, run. Now kids are running forward and they're crying and they're shouting and he's leading. And then, and, and I, I turned to my friend and said, I just, I have the worst migraine suddenly he goes, me too, let's leave. So we left. We happened to be staying at the home of the host of the meeting who'd brought in the revivalist and we're like, What's taking him so long? So two hours later, he shows up and he says, we finally got our breakthrough. Oh, I see. The, we finally tore the veil. We finally shouted loud enough. And how did he know? Well, because the kids all just were began to weep much harder. It's like that's because you spiritually abused them for hours. And, 
and and now that you know in their desperation they cry out and oh so the crying so they got god to come which is really bizarre um and incredibly similar to that prophets of baal experience and and uh, I'm just so sorry that I that I was a participant in in that kind of spiritual abuse um, that could imagine we needed to make God show up. And uh, instead, then my godfather led me into seeing, you know, I don't even have to pursue a living connection with God. I already have one. What I need to work out is um, coming to awareness of it coming to awareness of my union with God in Christ, having him open my eyes to the reality that he's ever present and fills all things. And mm -hmm. I remember reading, yeah. discovering that Acts 17 passage, you know, where Paul is speaking to those pagans and telling them, mm, you know, even, yeah. even your own poets know that we yeah. are God's children and God is not far from any one of us. We live and moving we are living and moving and have our, having our being in God. And yes. Paul is saying this to a group of pagans. Yes. Yeah, and I'm thinking that, um, you know, I heard that sermon too in those same circles, but it was somehow like, well, by virtue of, your, of, of, of being his creation, you're his children, but you're not really his children until you, you know, say the prayer at the meeting. And 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 I, I think what we'd want to say is no, um, the entire cosmos was created in Christ, and it has its being in Christ. And what are we doing separating Christ from creation? So it'd be like nothing, uh, nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. We took that as nothing that nothing can separate Christians from the love of God if they pray the right prayer and are therefore in Christ Jesus when in fact in Christ Jesus is the very condition of reality and and and, and creation in the cosmos and humanity I was uh, speaking of cosmic dimensions of this I was talking with somebody who was rethinking their faith and they were saying something along the lines of well maybe the virgin birth and the resurrection maybe those things don't have to really have happened maybe it's that Jesus taught us to love and died loving and forgiving even those who crucified him. And maybe that's enough. But my concern with that is that Jesus was doing more than setting a moral example in his ministry, as important as that moral example was and is. So could you talk about how the incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, could you talk about this as I think of as the Christ event as being cosmic and therefore inclusive of, of humanity and all of human destiny? Yeah, very good. So some people, yeah, when when they some people who speak about the cosmic Christ are trying to divorce the spirit of Christ who is in all places and fills all things from the history of the incarnation. So they want to separate Jesus and the Christ, want to separate um, the importance of of those things that you mentioned in the incarnation, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension to glory. And it's sort of like, well, yeah, uh, there's the Christ. And then for a while, there's an episode in the life of Christ that is called Jesus. And then, but at the ascension now, the Christ goes back to being cosmic and sort of leaves behind his humanity. 
I don't think that would be if, if I'm, I can't say that of all people who, but I, who, who teach like this, but some definitely do. And their disciples double down on it to the point where it doesn't even matter if Jesus existed. Okay. Um, I have good friends in that camp too. Uh, we've decided not to part company as friends over it, but I just think that it, it's odd that we would make a move that distinguishes between Jesus and, and Christ when John's move, who knew him better than anyone except maybe his mom, says, look at Jesus is the Christ. And, and Jesus, the Christ, said before Abraham was, I am. He's identifying that, that the God-man is eternal, not just that there's a God-word who temporarily becomes human, but that, that there is an eternity to the God-man. The, the, but for, that, for the God-man to be eternal, he must show up in space and time. It's not real if he doesn't actually become human. So at one, at, at, at one level... Um, we are talking about the cosmic Christ. Uh, another level, we are talking about a human man named Jesus of Nazareth, but they're indivisible, and it's one person forever. So that's that's sort of how I see that. And then and then if then I'm very happy to embrace a cosmic Christ if 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 that cosmic Christ instantiated his eternal existence in space and time in the first century and reveal it's God revealing himself to us as a human. Now here's why it matters so much to me. You can kind of take um, an, a, an ethereal or a spiritual version of the Christ. You, you get this in, um, in other religions even. And it's beautiful that the, this, the, that he's like, you know, so some of my friends call him universe and or, or the word, or, or the Christ, or the, the divine, and all of that, fine and true. But also, here's what, here's what the revelation of Christ in the person of Jesus brings to the table that I can't find anywhere else. He shows me his wounds. Thomas falls down and says, my Lord and my God, not because light was glowing out of Jesus' eyes, or thunder was barking above his head. He falls down and he worships him as God because this God has borne our wounds. And not to me that um, I need that. That's the only God I can trust. And that's why Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 4 insist on the incarnation of God in the in the person of Christ so that he um, so that he can sympathize co-suffer with our entire experience and offer that back up to his father. So, um, yeah, so I'm a Jesus is the Christ kind of guy, and I'm a God is love revealed in the wounds kind of guy. And and um, and that makes sense for some people. It's very compelling for some people. Others, they need to think about it some more, and there's time for them to do that. Well, I like the idea that that just to take one part of it, when Christ dies— that's not just something that I'm looking at him do. He's incorporating me into that as well. Yes, and so that yes. whole incorporation and then the recapitulation, those, those become pretty, those become very strong, important parts of all of this, as I understand it. 
Yeah, I die with him and I rise with him then or always. So we don't say we don't say Christ died and Christ rose in the Orthodox Church. We we say uh, Christ is risen. It's this now that which happened in in time and history now um, ha, has created a new kind of state where Christ is risen and is alive. This is why like the resurrection kind of matters. Paul Paul's like already hearing these objections. Well, you know, maybe maybe he's just raised metaphorically. No, if he's raised only metaphorically, he's dead. <laughs> he's not risen. He's not alive. He's not with you and he's not in you except maybe as an idea which you can trade in for the next idea but but um and if and if and if he's dead um what hope do you have uh so it's very i i'd want to double down on that one and and just say i'm i'm with paul on that and he says this is the gospel now so if you have a kind of Christian who doesn't believe in the resurrection, that's a really kind of, or doesn't believe in the historicity of Jesus. That's a very strange kind of Christian in my mind. And I would call that, I, I would call that a heresy, but I, by heresy, I don't mean it really as a pejorative. <laughs> I just mean you've made a mistake there. There's somehow you've, I think that's a mistake and uh, let's talk about it. So just as people who think, I've made a mistake. Think I'm a heretic. It's like okay, but we could we could have a coffee over that probably and make. And I I don't know what we would discover. It depends. Well, one person I talked with recently told me they didn't know if they could trust the Bible anymore. In their deconstruction, their fundamentalist upbringing couldn't account for the complexity and diversity and the tension we find in an actual. Um, engagement with scriptural text. However, you seem to have weathered the storm. You seem to now be able to thrive in the midst of the complexity of biblical text and also understand Jesus to be the final revelation of God, the word of God in the flesh. So what advice would you have for people whose simplistic approach to the Bible that they grew up with is deconstructing and now they don't know where to go or what to do with the Bible? Yeah. So where was their trust anyway at that point? I suppose their trust was in a certain way of reading the Bible that they had inherited. And it's really not fair to read the Bible in a way different than Jesus read the Bible. So I I would start on the road to Emmaus and I did in my book, A More Christ-like Word. It's yeah. it's an Emmaus reading where we say it's it's not fair to me to go to these ancient texts with modern assumptions and modern methods of reading, especially not modernistic literal kind of readings that don't even pay attention to the genres or to the um, intentions of those who wrote them or specifically the way Jesus read them. So even his own disciples had not understood the scriptures. He's on the road to Emmaus. They've been with him over three years. And they start telling him about his own death. And and they thought he was a prophet. And they thought he was a teacher. And they, it's like, my goodness, have you not been listening or watching at all? 
And so Jesus then opens their eyes, and in opening their eyes to, to see, he opens the scriptures, and he tells them about his, that the scriptures, Moses, the prophets, and all the scriptures were, were um, many voices in many genres, all culminating in him, that the, that, the, that the Messiah must suffer and then come into his glory, and it's all there. And, and suddenly their eyes are opened, and then, and then when you get Paul talking about the gospel is this, that Christ died according to the scriptures, and he rose on the third day according to the scriptures. What, what scriptures is he talking about? The gospels hadn't been read, written yet. Mm-hmm. He's talking about their scriptures, but now even as someone who'd been very carefully trained as a rabbi is, or by rabbis, by real experts in the, in scripture, he Paul hadn't got it, but now Christ opens his eyes to see that the scriptures are pointing to him. So my advice then would be, um, unless you're reading the scriptures the way Jesus read them as prefiguring his life and death and resurrection, then you probably shouldn't trust your reading anyway. But what if you were to trust his reading? How would you read them like him? And and I would say, well, um, a more Christ-like word teaches you how to do that, but how am I doing it? Well, I'm just going back to the first Christians, to people like Melito of Sardis. Um, you can read his sermon on Pascha online for free. And in there, he explains how they read the scriptures the Emmaus way and how everything and especially the Passover pointed to Jesus and how he sees Jesus in every story from Cain and Abel through the story of Joseph being sold into bondage to, you know, all the way through to the prophets, Isaiah and Zechariah and so on. Um, When you read it that way, you can see, oh my goodness, these scriptures actually are genius. If you don't read them literally, um, unless they're telling you to read them literally. But even the, the stories that purport to be historical um, um, need to be read through the, the lens of Jesus. And otherwise, don't read them. You'll just get offended. <laughs> it, but that's a very shallow reading. And if you don't have time for complexity, don't read them because they're complex. If if you want a shallow reading, don't read them or you'll be dangerous. I get it. But I read them because they're beautiful in that as they lift up Christ. And especially, how else do we know Jesus? Well, we know Jesus by direct encounter and by what the scriptures say about him. And to match the two is important for quality control. Um I read the scriptures so that the Jesus in my heart is not just a projection of me and my desires. And I listen to Jesus in my heart so that my reading of the Gospels isn't betrayed by my bad hermeneutics or interpretive systems. So I compare the two. Now, in the book, you bring us into conversation with several historical figures. Would you say a little bit about what prompted your historical overview and maybe some highlights about that? Sure. Um, Yeah, I came to this conclusion that deconstruction is not the problem. It's not a problem at all. It's it's a, it's a half-baked deconstruction that is problematic. It's a 
Um, and, and it's an unguided deconstruction that is the problem. It's, it's when we think, well, I'm just, gonna, I'm just going to follow my heart and no one should tell me how to deconstruct and, and I'm going to cut my own string. I'll be like a kite without a string. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I noticed that. You're in a tree now. <laughs> and you've crashed and well, what did you expect so instead of just like reversing the process which you probably can't and repenting of your deconstruction which you definitely shouldn't you need to you need to um to find the experts with a track record and i mean not living ones <laughs> We, we have yet to see how this works out for people like me and others who are, you know, working out deconstruction. I mean the great deconstructionists of history. So I pick up these historical figures. And um, so what some of the highlights of that are that some of them were actually what I call beloved frenemies. They are people like Voltaire and Nietzsche who... Um, they have something to say to us. They are able to see some of our golden calves. They are able to address abuses in Christendom and, and hit them head on. But they're also noticing how those who've done that have gone astray. And Voltaire, who's a, you know, he's an incredible opponent of Christianity. And at the same time, he takes on the opponents of Christianity and says, you've just become like them. And you've become as intolerant as any Christian. And, and, and he's as hard on, on the deconstructionists as he is on Christendom. And Nietzsche will do the same thing. He'll say, okay, we need to get rid of um, the monarchy. We need to get rid of the church. And then what? And he describes prophetically how nihilism will become an incredible darkness in this world and was played out in people like Hitler. He's a prophet in that sense. And he says, we're not meant to, we're not meant to live as without meaning. Um, but he doesn't see Christ as the meaning because in his mind, it was so tied to the corrupted church. But we then also, other highlights would be ones like Voltaire or like Nietzsche, who are really, um, they, they see the same things they do, but they're like, and Christ is our hope. So no one's harder on the church than Kierkegaard, but he's definitely like, we have to follow Jesus. We have to surrender to him because he's the way through this and he's not the church you hate. It's not the same thing. And, and um, same with Dostoevsky and, um, and same with Simone Weil. So they can be critics, but they're critics from the inside. They're not just throwing stones from the outside. They're, and, and they're working out how do you how do we bring a, a powerful correction to the misuse of Jesus and to come back to him as a living person and and to follow him and to be in communities and communion with those who follow him so i i really found like um these folks were were willing to to not do a half baked job it, it's like all the way down right and so there's this great russian uh, proverb I picked up. It's cynical, but I added something to it. <laughs> so the cynical version is this. When you think you've bottomed out, you'll hear a knock from below. And then what I added to it, and it's Christ knocking. 
So it, it so, so what we don't want to do in deconstruction, I think, is, is sort of the half-assed way. I, I think we need to say, what would it look like to walk this all the way through, even to deconstructing deconstruction? If you haven't done that, you're not done. Well, we've been talking for a while, and I want to start, start to bring this in for a landing. All right. So as we're doing that, um, you know, the spiritual travelers who are coming to this podcast are hopefully curious about the intersection of Orthodox Christianity and the ultimate redemption of all. So do such green and verdant pastures really exist within historic Christianity? Is the cool water of God's invincible love for all really available? After all the unworthy attachments are burned away from Christendom, can we really discover a legitimate Christian faith where we can believe that Jesus never leaves, never gives up, and never loses with any of us? Well, I can only maybe share my story and those who've told me their story, um, some who are in the book, that uh, yes, that it's possible, but it's also surprising where you might find it. So you don't know where the grace of God is going to show up, and you don't know where it won't show up. So can you find green pastures inside institutional Christianity? Yes, you can. Can you also find poison wells there? Absolutely. It's worse than you think. <laughs> um, outside the church, it's like, if I just escaped the institution, now I'm home free. Well, you might be, or you could go from the frying pan into the fire. You could go from toxic community to no community and alienation. But I also see people who aren't working within the structure structures of the church who've definitely found um, the grace of God outside those structures, and some of them wouldn't even identify with Christianity at all. So I mentioned my friends in 12-step recovery um, who are being transformed by the living God as they do daily surrender to him, even if Jesus has to humbly come to them anonymously. And I just am I'm very fascinated by that because they've seen the light, they've responded to the light they've seen, and they are actually be living miracles. And like some of them, um, they can't hear the name of Jesus without thinking of a church that abused them or their parents mm -hmm. or something. Others can't even hear the, you know, they, they can, they, they've separated Christ Jesus from the, from, from the Christian brand that they've, they're soured on, but they're reading the Sermon on the Mount every day, like Gandhi did, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's always surprising where I see it, but where I, what I'm looking for is, is grace connections between people and God and people and each other, and that those grace connections are tested by the fruit of transformation. So I'm on the lookout for that all the time, and I, and, and it's not, it, it's not, exclusive of churches and it's not exclusive outside of churches um, and you'll always find reasons to be disillusioned <laughs> but you'll also um, I think you'll bump into grace in surprising places and ways and it it's uh, it's it's amazing well to, to maybe switch the metaphors a little bit I've been thinking that in this time of what you're calling the great deconstruction that if if Christianity, that Christianity has been some people's home, they feel like they just have to leave, that there's no, there's no place for them. 
anymore. Yep. And so what I want to say is, well, before you leave the home, why don't you try this room over here? And they, yeah. and they didn't know that that room existed. And I show them into this room and the view is beautiful. There's nothing not to like about it. And, and I tell them that actually this room has been here the whole time. And yep. it's like their response is, well, if I had known this room was here, I, I, I wouldn't had to, I wouldn't have to leave. And then there's other yes, people yes. who were, who were wondering about the Christian house and, uh, they, they have reasons for not being able to come into it. And, and when I say, well, there's this, what about this room here in the house? And they say, really, that room is there. I didn't know that room was there. Yeah. And, but once people find that place, wow, it's powerful. I mean, in terms of 12 step recovery or recovery from trauma, it's amazing the healing that can take place in that room, in that house. And to me, you're somebody who a, an evangelical and the great deacon, I, I'm not, I haven't, I don't have evangelical credentials. You, and I think of you and Brian Zahn have impeccable evangelical credentials <laughs> and have been through the great deconstruction. And you have found this room inside the Christian house and are inviting people in to discover how beautiful it is. The review is great. And there's just so much healing that's happening, that's happening there. So I just really appreciate what you and others uh, like you are doing and helping people to, to find that room. And so maybe in closing, if you could just say a little bit about that. Yeah. One, one thing um, would be to immerse yourself in the Sermon on the Mount. And then it would be lovely to see if you can find a community. Um, I did, I was going to say a like-minded community. That's not what we are. Um, we are an unlike-minded family. <laughs> and this is the beauty of, of even uh, coming together around the Eucharist is that I look across the room at the kind of people who are participating in the same right as me to receive the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And we may not be on the same page at all. So if we start looking just for people that are just on the same page as us, you won't even be able to hold a home group together for yeah. more well, than and, a year. And, and, yeah. Know, in my it, experience, it it's, it's more like uh, finding like a small group within it, within a church, a Sunday school class or a small group where you're, you're getting to be in larger community, but you still get to have that uh, commonality with some others. Yeah. Very good. Very good. Yeah. And wouldn't it be nice uh, um, if, if it was in walking distance so that it's truly in your community? I know some people have, they just to find us, they have to go online. Others, they have to drive an hour. Yeah. Um, but I wonder what would happen is if we just said, okay, let's let's think about what are the churches that are within walking distance. And you might be surprised what you find because as when I was an evangelical, I was taught about all of the churches that weren't even Christian. And then I became disillusioned with aspects of evangelical theology in standard, you know, and I thought, is there's nowhere for me to, to, to worship. And it's like, wait a minute, actually that Lutheran church, that Presbyterian church, that Anglican church, that Episcopalian church, even that Catholic church. Yeah, but they don't count. See, I, I had been taught right. that they don't count, but why didn't they count? Well, because they didn't believe in all of the things I'm starting to reject. Right. Oh, 
So it it might be good to just check in with the local pastors and priests and 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 rectors and 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 just to say, here's where I'm at on my journey. Um, what do you you know? Is this a is this a decent fit for me or no? Like, or would I just be kicked out of here as a heretic and just be upfront about it? And so, for example, when I first encountered Archbishop Lazar, I was already my my theology of of penal substitution was coming apart, and I'm like, is it okay if I don't believe that here? And he said, you're required not to believe that here. I'm like, oh, really? <laughs> so suddenly, this weird group that I thought were just like I didn't even know if they were Christians. And now I'm like, no, this is, I'm, I'm home, you know? So at least in that way. So, um, yeah, it'd be, it's worth asking because you, what's the name of your group again, David? The Christian Church Disciples of Christ. Yeah. So that, that was, a, that's a fairly unfamiliar name and it's like so i might not consider checking in and it yeah might well be you'll exactly see it, it, it like in any town it might be like first christian church and you'll see a little parenthesis disciples mm. of christ or something uh, but yeah, like you're saying yeah. i've you know i've had conversation with uh, presbyterian ministers who've said yeah sure you'd be welcome with your views you'd be welcome to come to church or you certainly you know we're not going to kick you out or anything you you would be in discussion with the larger tradition but you could certainly we would certainly welcome you here. So there was some, there was some welcome even in places that I didn't think, you know, that there could be welcome. Exactly that. Exactly that. And, and I don't know if you're experiencing this, but I get, you know, I get emails from a lot of people who are saying, I've been thinking about this and I finally came to this conclusion and uh, I've been scared to share it with people, but there's some older folks in the church that I knew, and I decided I wanted to just try and confide it in them. And when I did, they told me that they'd been thinking this way for years. So there's a lot. Oh, yeah. of, I hear that all of, the time. There's a lot of underground thinking. And, you know, my podcast yeah. is very open that I'm talking about Christianity and universal salvation, which I'm talking about Christian universalism. Well, those are hot button words for a lot of people. I chose them because they're common terms, however problematic they are, that people at least can identify when they're when they're looking around. So I would think that that would put off evangelicals, but they come and they listen. And I know they do because they send me emails and they tell me about it. And I know that yeah. they're listening. Yeah, I know that they're listening because, you know, even in the part of the world that I live in, which is deep red state evangelical America, I can just be around some random people and they will know your name and they will know Brian Zahn's name in Arkansas. That's weird. <laughs> you know, that's disconcerting. But here's the great thing is it's shifting very fast, fast I think, David. You're, you've got churches. I think this is true. I'm going to make a guess at a statistic. I think there are many, many, many churches where their faith statement requires them to believe in eternal conscious torment, and 40% of them absolutely don't. And they just affirm those faith statements with their fingers crossed or their noses plugged. And I hear I hear what you're hearing over and over again. It's like, oh, I never believed that. And it's like, they intuitively know it's wrong, but they had to be silent as long as there weren't teachers who were credible saying, actually, this is the ancient faith or one stream of it. And it's okay to be in the minority. The, the Christian and Jewish prophetic traditions were always the minority report. Mm -hmm. And 
They operated inside the temple system, sometimes outside the temple system. It's no different today. And so I, I see the shift happening really fast. I, I think every decade, eternal conscious torment is going to lose another 10% of its adherence until we can finally call it a heresy. Well, and, the, and, so. now, and, and now the children or the young people are willing to openly question this and are talking to their parents and yep. saying, I am not staying around for this. And yeah. I think that's driving a lot of the great deconstruction. Yeah, that's true. So in a generation, that, here's the problem. In a generation, you can lose them completely. And so let's not, you know, is this really a deal killer? And if it's not, then let's stop making it. Let's say so, right? And and uh, so they don't have to flee. Well, Brad, thank you very much for uh, sharing some of your uh, valuable time with us. You're a voice that a lot of us have learned to really um appreciate. And I think a lot of people can hear you. And I would say that, that you're a trustworthy guide for deconstructioners. Um, uh, but I think you would also say, well, don't just look, look to me alone. You know, let's, there's, this is, there's a lot no, of good, a no. lot, lot of good voices to pay attention to. Yeah, that's really true. I, and especially since, you know, You've got those whose whose lives have been exemplary and saintly, and just there's no spot on the record. That's not me. I've come through my deconstruction, as as you even cited earlier. You know, that it, for me it was messy, and I, um, I am one of those who perpetrated spiritual abuse. I'm one of those who harmed others. I would, I would regard myself as disqualified as in pastoral care and ministry, but. I keep talking because I feel like I am, uh, I'm not off the hook from paying forward the mercy I received. So if there's people who are in addiction, people who are, who experience shame, people who've screwed up royally, um, uh, I'm with you. You're in good company. And um, so uh, Apparently, there's his mercy endures forever. <laughs> well, I encourage everybody uh, to go out and pick up a copy of Brad's latest book, Out of the Embers, Faith After the Great Deconstruction. Thank you, Brad, once again for spending some time with us. Thanks, David. Always a pleasure. I'm grateful that you would have me on. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.